It's because in our research, we observe that people don't understand inherently the competition or the trade-off between different values. And so they say things to us like, you know, keep me alive at all costs. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In this episode, we're going to be talking to our first physician guest. We have Dr. Darren Highland joining us. And you'll hear that Dr. Highland has uh, what I think is a great message. I'm very enthusiastic about this uh, concerning how we can do better with advanced care directives or personal directives or powers of attorney for healthcare. Uh, this episode is good for a whole range of CE credits as usual uh, life insurance credits in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Ontario. This will be good for the elusive accident and sickness credit in Alberta. This will be good for a financial planning credit with FP Canada, as well as Advocus, and finally good for a professional development credit with IROC. We're going to hear a fairly in-depth discussion here about decision making, and not really, that's not quite the right way to put it, but preparing for the difficult decisions that we might have to make uh, for a loved ones. And I think it's important when you listen to this to try and put yourself in sort of two different sets of shoes. I think it's good to think about uh, being the person who actually has to make this decision. So if you have a loved one who's going through this, what tools would you want to have available to decide or to work with the physician really to decide how uh, care is going to be delivered. And when you hear Dr. Highland go through this, I think it's easy to develop an appreciation for just how complicated a decision this can be, uh, but then also to see how it is possible for you to make this decision easier. The other set of shoes I think it's worthwhile putting yourself in is the physician's shoes. The physician is in this position where they really do have a lot of power or authority. Uh, they're going to be seen as a trusted resource. Uh, they don't want to be making some uh, recommendation here or providing advice that could lead to an outcome that everybody's going to regret. And we'll hear Dr. Highland talk about regret a little bit in the interview. I think if you look at both sides of that decision, the person making the decision and the physician working with that person, it helps to recognize what we should be bringing to our healthcare providers, what we, the types of documents that we should have in hand in case something like this goes wrong. The color for today's episode is green. 
the color for today's episode is green. Hi, we're joined today by Dr. Darren Hyland. Dr. Hyland is a ICU doctor, intensive care doctor, currently in Lethbridge, Alberta, but you practice at uh, Queen's University in Kingston. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Hyland? Uh, yeah, well, I'm a long-term resident of Alberta, but uh, happened to work for 15 years out in Kingston and as a critical care doctor, but I moved back home for family reasons, and so I continue to run my research uh, organization that's based in Kingston. And the uh, primary focus of our research has been on improving communication and decision-making for seriously ill patients. And of course, that's led to the development of this tool, this PlanWell guide, which we'll chat about a little bit later on, that people will be wondering why I have a physician on the uh, on the call. But there's, a, to me, a great reason to have you here. Now, based on your research and your uh, time in the field, I know you have quite a heavy interest in advanced care directives or personal directives or living wills or powers of attorney for healthcare or whatever language we're going to attach to this. And the original method by which you came to me was you had attended a session put on by some by a financial advisor where you were, I think, concerned that the information being presented about advanced care directives wasn't exactly right. Can you start off with a, a, a little description of what that document is and what it's intended to do? Yeah, um, let, let me just sort of re retell that story that, you know, 95% of what I heard from that financial advisor was spot on and I was excited about and grateful for. But, you know, I think in fulfilling, you know, their their duties, they were trying to refer us to go to a lawyer and do our end of life planning, you know, as as a part of that sort of will and estate planning conversation. And I, I just you know, took exception to, you know, doing health planning with a, a lawyer. And and when, when I say that out loud, does that make sense to you that you do your health planning with a lawyer and not a doctor? <laughs> and and so I, I, I hope listeners understand that, you know, I'm not trying to besmirch the legal profession. I'm just trying to say, you know, it'd be better if we did our health planning with doctors and, and, and not with lawyers. And unfortunately here, you know, health care law, um, the, the the law and the practice of law have got us into a, a trouble. And so what I'm trying to do is correct that. Um, so there, there definitely is a legal foundation for naming someone to be a substitute decision maker. And, and that, so don't, anything I say from here on, I, I want to support the fact that whether it's in Alberta or Ontario, you want to designate someone to make decisions for you in advance. Uh, I mean, it, it to substitute for you when you become ill or, or incapacitated. But where we get into trouble is thinking, though, that I need to um, define in advance the healthcare decisions that I want to make and that that is done with a lawyer. And so I'm all about trying to correct that and say, no, we should not make um, instructional directives or advanced directives, um, other than the naming of the individual who's going to represent us, we should really only capacitate that individual to best represent us and the essence of us. And what is that? Well, that's our, our values and our preferences, not as a decision made, but just as a, you know, here's what's really important to this individual. Here's what they're thinking is important, you know, in terms of their treatment preferences, but it's not a final decision. The final decision comes later in the moment 
when that person is seriously ill and either they need to verbalize those values and preferences or uh, the um, substitute decision maker steps in and, and is able to articulate that. So it's a bit of different framing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think back to when I did this, my wife and I did this with our lawyer and how very prescriptive this was. And really, we made fairly detailed decisions. But I'll use the CPR thing as an example. Your your website has this great uh, link to a video about CPR. And I was astounded at the the challenges that follow getting CPR. I did not realize how low the sort of long-term survival rates are and how much follow-on effects it can have. You know, you, you see it in the movies and they hook up the machine and they defibrillate somebody or they get CPR from the paramedics and like they're up and running the next day. And, and your, your website did a good job of sort of explaining that this is far more consequential in terms of your, your long-term outcomes. Can you maybe just chat about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, this CPR thing is again, one of the things that befuddles me because again, you're sitting there traditionally you sit with a lawyer and a lawyer's codifying in a personal directive or a power of attorney you know, if, if you want CPR or not, if you start to ask a question, well, well, tell me about, you know, CPR and what it is or what the outcomes might be. Of course, they're, they're not going to have an answer. So why are those conversations had in legal offices about using CPR or not um, in the form of, you know, in, in these planning documents? And so let's, let's stop that. Let's not have those health planning conversations. And if you want to know if CPR is right for you, on Planwell Guide, we have a, a five or a seven minute you know, video decision aid that shows everything you want to know about CPR in seven minutes. You'll understand you know, what will happen to you and what your chances of recovering are. So then you can make an informed preference, not an informed decision, but because you don't know. Like if you're 44 and you're in hospital with a heart attack and your heart stops, you've got a, a almost 100% chance of recovering well from CPR. Now, if I'm 44 and I'm in septic shock from COVID pneumonia and I'm on multiple life-sustaining treatments and my heart stops, you've got a near zero chance of recovering from CPR. And so we don't want you as a, as a lay person making a decision about CPR out of context. I think, you, you know, you have to inform yourself and say, well, on average, okay, I'm up for this, but let's, let's have a in the moment conversation with my physician to make that treatment decision. And that either will be with you or, again, your substitute decision maker. So I don't want to get bogged down in the legalities here, but I know there are provincial differences. You and I had a little conversation beforehand just about what the person making the decision is even called and how, how variable that is from province to province. Are there legislative differences that should matter to the advisor or the client? Or is it common enough from province to province that Except in Quebec, I don't. I don't want to bring Quebec into this at all, Dr. Highland. But uh, are there provincial legislative differences that should matter here? You know, again, it's if we we can stay at a high level and and use terms like substitute decision making and um, and shared decision making and in the moment clinical decision making, and that applies across provinces. Where we get into you know, delineating differences is what we call that substitute decision maker or what the act that supports their naming is called. Um, where 
where there also may be a little bit of differences in the healthcare consent laws. Um, and, and I think this is an important point that, and again, this is where the, like say the personal directive act conflicts with the healthcare consent acts because some some lawyers take the pers uh, personal directive act that supports the naming of a of a substitute in Alberta and conflate that with that 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 person then should be making decisions in advance or, or making decisions on behalf of the the client that they pre specify in that per personal directive. Whereas what what I'm obligated to follow from a healthcare consent point of view is I have to have a conversation with a patient or their surrogate or their substitute and go through an informed consent process of helping that person understand the treatment options, the risks, the benefits, the possible outcomes. And then in that consultation, we decide what's right. So when a, when a person comes with a personal directive or a power of attorney or, 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 or some living, something that says, you know, this is what I want. This is what the person wrote 20 years ago. Um, I can't follow that. I have to turn to the substitute decision maker and say, well, what do you think Bob meant when he said 20 years ago that he doesn't want CPR? Did he know that if he had a heart attack in a monitored environment in a, in a cardiac care unit that I could bring him back pretty sure, you know, pretty, pretty good chance of success? And, oh, no, no, I don't think he knew. So, so then we have to try and interpret um, that written legal document into the clinical realities of today. And that's where a lot of medical errors happen. Now, you might be surprised to know that in hospitals today, uh, around the decision-making about CPR or going to the ICU, there's an extraordinarily high error rate, uh, up to 80% in some hospitals when you look at older people uh, who are frail, vulnerable, sick, and, and in a hospital. If we spend time talking to them and really get to eliciting their values and preferences, and then we go look at what's happening on the medical record, there's a, a very low agreement rate. Um, because busy hospital, vulnerable patient, we don't spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. But from a research point of view, when we do spend that time, we figure out what's right for the patient with, with them. Again, the doctor hasn't necessarily done that. And so there's a lot of medical errors happening. So as I understand then, if you have a patient who shows up in your care and that person has capacity, they're fully possessed of their decision-making and you can have a conversation with them. Basically at that point, you're going to probably, I don't want to say override, but it's almost like you're going to override anything that's in that pre-existing document, right? You, you, re you really get to have the conversation that's specific to their circumstances here? In the ideal world, that is the case. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of misuse of planning documents so that they get read uh, quickly and then there's no conversation. So if somebody comes in with a DNR order or do not resuscitate me, we just accept that without talking to the person. Uh, and so that's another downside of making these instructions in advance is that it, it accepts the conversation, excludes the in the moment conversation. Unfortunately, I can really see the risk there because my circumstances, if something goes wrong, are likely to be, I guess, when something goes wrong, are likely to be substantially different from what I was thinking about in the lawyer's office in 2006 when I sat down to write this. Never mind technology changes. Yeah, I can see the risk here. Now, I guess the problem then is if in this ideal world, like you say, you get to have the conversation with the patient and all the circumstances are sort of considered there. But now if you have somebody who shows up 
in an unexpected set of events with a loss of capacity, it's not even me making the decision. Now it's you and the substitute decision maker having to navigate this. Can you talk a little bit about how those conversations go and what kind of outcomes maybe we typically see versus what we would like to see here? Yeah, and this really gets to why I developed PlanWell Guide because my lived experience as a critical care doctor, 95% of the time I was dealing with a family member, you know, the, the substitute decision maker. And 90% of the time they were ill-prepared, ill-prepared to step into that role. Um, you would see them stress out with, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. My dad never taught or my mom never talked to me about this. And we're, we're trying to engage them in, you know, life and death decisions or decisions that have significant impacts on the health and, 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 and life of an individual. And so they experience, they're already stressed that their loved one is sick. And then on top of that, we burden them with this role of being a substitute decision maker. And, it, you know, it's kind of interesting because, Again, 90% of those people would have been through a lawyer's office, or maybe 90% is a high number of actually, but a large majority would have been through a lawyer's office. The person would have been named as the substitute decision maker. But when they show up 20 years later or five years later or 30 years later and have to fulfill that role, many of them didn't realize. Many of them didn't know what the values and wishes would be. And so that adds to their burden, their stress, their experience, which they live with. I'll never forget, and again, this is what motivated me to step into this space was, you know, I had a, a woman, I had, I had a patient who was older, chronically ill, presented in acute extremis. I had minutes to make a, an end of life decision. You know, do we escalate care and put this person in the ICU or do we just focus on comfort measures? And so I'm pulling this wife into this conversation. And then the long and short of it is, you know, we ended up just palliating the individual and he died, you know, quite quickly, you know, in our hospital, like months later, she calls me and she says, Dr. Highland, did we do the right thing? You know, as it, you know, she's living with that vivid traumatic experience and wondering and regretting, and maybe even experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder as a consequence of that in the moment crisis where we had to make decisions. Wonder if it would have been easier had she, been able to call on the voice of her husband if her and I, I can tell you other positive stories where when that substitute decision maker can hear the voice of the person saying you know if I'm ever in this predicament this is these are my wishes you know please if you can follow them and so they make those tough calls usually about withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatments and letting the person go but they know that they're respecting the wishes of the individual and so by doing this planning in advance, you know, we can make it easier, not only for the patient, because now they're prepared to deal with me if I am talking to the patient, but that substitute decision maker is more capable of fulfilling their role with less stress, less post-traumatic stress disorder, less anxiety. I went through the tool at uh, PlanWell Guide. It took me a few tries. It's, uh, it's terrifying. And as you go, you think about the consequences of the decision and the challenge here is every step along the way, you're, and you're right, you're not really making decisions, but you're setting out the parameters for how those decisions would be made. It's brilliant that way. It does a great job explaining the trade-offs. And I think about this, if it was terrifying for me, you know, sitting at the comfort of my computer doing this, and then I think about 
my wife, my wife is a medical professional. She's proficient with this stuff, but still these are very consequential decisions. I just, I think about putting somebody in that situation and, and knowing what I know, sort of willfully putting somebody in that situation. Um, what do you see as sort of the impediments? You, you mentioned offline again, the sort of, let's say, success rate or the implementation rate for plan well guide. What do you see as the barriers to people actually getting that document done? Across Canada, the level to which people engage in what we traditionally call advanced care planning, um, we only see about 18% of Canadians lean into this space. And when I talk to Canadians about why they don't do it, when I, talk, I had a conversation with an 83-year-old who said to me, I don't do this planning because I'm too well. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to think about death and dying. And, and, and here's one of the key differences between plan well guide and any other advanced care planning tool um, is that we, we, we don't frame this around end of life care. Uh, we, we frame this around serious illness because a lot of people don't want to talk about death, dying or end of life, right? Um, and, and so by changing the language tomorrow on serious illness, you know, you could get hit by a car tomorrow or you could get COVID pneumonia tomorrow. And we would need to make these life, uh, sorry, these these decisions around how to treat your serious illness. And so, actually, that opens it up a lot more, and, and people are more willing to, you know, realize that yeah, they could have a stroke or a heart attack or COVID infection, and so they need to have these plans in place. So that I just wanted to make that point that we're actually not as terrifying as someone talking about death and dying and coffins and that sort of thing. Um, but nevertheless, people still have what we call decisional anxiety, or they're afraid to commit to, you know, this planning process. And I guess my um, my my response to that is to reassure you that in fact you're not you're not actually making a decision today, uh, and so you're not like this is cast in stone and it's done, and you'll never be able to revisit it or even change it. That's not true. No. You're, you're, you're preparing yourself. You're increasing your understanding of how clinical decisions are made when you're seriously ill, what the treatment options are, what the risks, benefits, and possible outcomes are, and you're suggesting a preference. It's not a decision made because the decision make, making actually happens in the future. And, if, and you'll want your doctor's input and, and their recommendation, and then they're helping you process that. But you'll have a much better conversation if you or your substitute decision maker come to that conversation um, prepared and being able to embrace this material that we're presenting and go through the values, uh, you know, clarification exercises for you. Um, we, we, we have a bit more um, language and visuals to support Planwell Guide. In the future, we'll be rolling out a new iteration of Planwell Guide and I've got, I've got some new material that will particularly address this um, decisional anxiety that I hope will help people work through it a little bit more too. So talking to the financial advisors who are listening, you know, a good group of financial advisors and financial planners listening to this call, and they will all have sent their clients to go and get wills and personal directives done. Does everybody need to go and get a new personal directive? You know, if you have a personal directive like mine that's very prescriptive, am I going to 
Planwell guy just doing up the the document there and and going and getting a new personal directive or advanced care directive done. On you need to get a new personal directive. Um, I'm going to come down strongly on you need to go to the Planwell guide and get a dear doctor letter. Let me explain what the dear doctor letter is because it, it works in conjunction with the personal directive. If all I really want from the personal directive is the legal naming of who's who's good, or personal directive or power of attorney or um, healthcare directive in Saskatchewan or personal representation agreement in BC. So they all have different names. But the point is those legal documents name the individual and that's all they really should do. No more instructions. If you have instructions, just cross them out on your old personal directive and say, refer to uh, the dear doctor letter as a summation of the values and preferences that I want represented in that future conversation with my doctor when we're making decisions about using or not using life-sustaining treatments. So as you go through Planwell Guide, we will go through, um, or the, the user will go through some values clarification exercises um, there's some educational material or what we call a decision aid where we help people understand the difference between ICU care or medical care or comfort care. And then we elicit a preference from them. They, they work up a preference and, 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 and denote that. And then there's a place where they can record any outstanding issues or, or questions or comments that they have for, for either their, their future doctor or their, their substitute decision maker. And then they can print that. They can download it from the website, save it, print it. And they have a hard copy of the conversation that they want to have with their future doctor to make decisions. And that copy then serves as a script for the substitute decision maker. So it needs to be combined with the legal document naming the substitute decision maker. This becomes the, their operational script to enact that role or to play that role. So if I'm a financial planner and I'm trying to advise my clients to, to think ahead and plan ahead for um, the broad aspects of will and estate planning, yeah, you got to go get a will, you got to go get that legal document that names your, your, you know, your decision maker and you should go to plan well guide and get that script or the, the information that that substitute decision maker will need to, to best enact your wishes. So when I went through the tool, I saw this real trade-off between sort of like keep me alive at all costs and I don't care what my quality of life looks like afterwards and the other side of that sort of spectrum. And I know you presented on sort of this nine, nine box grid, which I really liked. I, I think the financial planners and financial advisors who are listening to this will really appreciate that grid. It, it's an elegant decision-making sort of matrix. Um, and so the other side of that is, like, I don't care, don't take any, I'm going to use the word extraordinary measures. I know it's a latent word, but ex don't take any extraordinary measures to keep me alive. You know, kind of do what you can, but if you can't kind of keep me alive in the moment, I don't want to stick around and be a burden. Is that a fair summary of that sort of trade-off decision? And can you talk a little bit about what outcomes, like I'm 46, let's say that I show up with the dear doctor letter, with either of those you know, sides of the spectrum identified clearly, had a serious car crash, what kind of interventions would I expect or not expect based on those outcomes? Yeah, great. Great question. Let me let me back that up a little bit and explain why we um, asked the question in the way we asked the question. And it's because in our research, we observe that people don't understand inherently the competition or the trade-off between different values. And so they say things to us like, 
you know, keep me alive at all costs or, or no, sorry. And, um, keep me comfortable at all costs, for example. Well, those are, those are competing ideas, right? Because if I'm going to keep you alive at all costs, I'm going to use invasive machines and tubes that will, I'm sorry. And, and we'll try as best as we can to keep you comfortable, but there will be some uncomfortable experiences that you go through uh, if you go to intensive care. That's just the reality of it. In contrast that with someone who is on a more comfort measures only or more a dignity preserving tract, um, not, not with 100%, but with a high probability of success, we can focus and make sure you're kept comfortable. But consequently, you won't necessarily live as long. And so those, those are competing ideas. And so, and there's not like it's a right or wrong, right? Because every individual is different. Um, so, so if you're, you're, you're young and you're healthy and, and you want every chance, you know, at living, that's fine. You just need to know that the consequence of saying, keep me alive at all costs is it'll come at the expense of comfort and quality of life. Cause I, I, I could keep you alive, but through the course of your serious illness, you know, there'll be some pain or discomfort and you may uh, emerge from your serious illness with some reduction in your quality of life. For, for many older people, I hear things like, well, I would rather die than go to a nursing home, or I'd rather die than suffer any more decrease in my function or my, I'm barely hanging on here. And so if you're going to knock me down a few knocks, you know, I, I'd rather you just focus on quality and, and, and not quantity. And so that's why it's super important that we ask the question, are you the kind of person that, you know, wants us to focus on quality or quantity. You can't have both. They're, they compete with each other. If you say, I'm a quantity person, I want all chances, then then you'll, then you'll that is informative to us because it means I'm going to send you to the ICU. I may even use cardiac pulmonary resuscitation. But on the contrast, if you're saying to me, I'm more of a quality person, I'm more of a comfort person, then it, then it says to me that more likely, more conservative measures, whether that's medical care, or just comfort care only would be more appropriate for you. So it, it increases the connection between what's important to you as a layperson and the tools in my toolkit. And I can transparently, using that grid that you made reference to, I can transparently connect your values to the tools in my toolkit, to those possible treatments, so that you see it and I see it and we see it together. Right now, it's a very non-transparent, non-reproducible um, clinical encounter with a patient and a doctor where a doctor asks the patient, you know, tell me what's important to you. And the patient says something. And, and again, they're not aware of the competition or the implication of whatever that patient says. And the doctor makes a computation in his or her head to come up with a medical, you know, treatment. And, and so it's not reproduced. It's not transparent. And so plan well guide innovation is to try and, you know, bring tools that help articulate and demonstrate the competition and then transparently connect what the person says is important to them to the medical treatment. So to reduce medical error and ensure that or increase the chances that the person gets the medical treatment that's right for them. It makes a lot of sense. And it's still, it sounds so difficult to get it right. I just, I don't envy the decision that you would find yourself in here. Like you talked about the situation before you had minutes to make a what really and truly a life and death decision, right? It's not, it's not hyperbole to say it that way. Um, now, 
a lot of the folks listening will be pulling out their hair saying, tell me what it costs. And can you just talk a little bit about the business model for uh, Planwell Guide, Dr. Highland? Well, I'm not a business person. I'm a, I'm a doctor. Uh, the tool is free. Um, I, I am trying to uh, partner with lawyers and financial planners and other people that are in the planning space because I want to get the word out to reduce suffering. I mean, if we can get people to be thinking ahead and planning ahead, then we can uh, better prepare persons and their substitute decision makers for, for serious illness. And, and, and then you have, you know, you, you'll, you, you too will have a conversation with them about other things that they need to prepare for from a financial point of view. So I just, I, I don't have a business model. I don't have a pricing structure. It's a free tool right now. And uh, I'm just trying to find out how best to collaborate with people from the financial industry. Because again, Jason, and this is where maybe I can ask a question of you. I mean, you, you and your, 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 your industry spend a lot of time with, with people who, who are sitting across from you, you know, willing to think ahead and plan ahead. So if I could get you to you know, plant that seed that you need to prepare for serious illness, and go off and do this and use this free tool that would help them, then that's what I'm after. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you see opportunities to weave this serious illness planning conversation into your interactions with a client and, and what that might look like. And, and, and perhaps just to build on that, like what, what are your effective communication strategies to get people to lean into thinking ahead and planning ahead? Because that's one of our challenges as a medical profession is to get people to embrace the idea of thinking ahead and planning ahead. So how's it, how's it work for you? And how do you see us sort of working together um, on this, helping people think ahead and plan ahead agenda? Yeah, I love this question. The, uh, so anybody who's attended regular classes with me knows that I have two big areas that I think don't get discussed enough. One is annuities, which we won't talk about here, but the other is disability insurance. And what happens in my mind is that uh, we get really good at talking about end of life. What happens when I die? And you know, everybody who listens to this podcast probably has sold a life insurance policy and does so regularly. And that, that life insurance discussion couples perfectly with the wills discussion. And I think what kind of happens here is then we say, all right, client, if I'm gonna do your life insurance work and your estate planning work and your tax planning work, you have to go to your lawyer and get a will done. And while you're at your lawyer, you're gonna get a power of attorney and a personal directive or whatever the appropriate language is in the province you're in. But the power of attorney and the personal directive are secondary in that conversation. And really what this means is that we're probably only having this conversation with people where death is something we've talked about meaningfully. So there will be some age cutoff there or some other circumstantial cutoff. It might be, I talk about this with clients at 50 or 55 or something like that, but I think we miss a huge chunk of the planning we should be doing and a huge amount of contingencies that can happen. And I, the motor vehicle collision, at age 35, you know, this to me is the, if you don't think this can happen to you or to your clients or whatever the case is, you're, and I'm sure you've seen plenty of motor vehicle collisions and the, the consequences, and these are, I know, often very difficult. I would, 
I think that what should be happening here is we should be having a meaningful conversation with every client about the what if you end up in this position where there's a, a loss of capacity and inability to make decisions. There should be a disability insurance conversation, an emergency fund planning conversation, and as you've and you did a great job of explaining this to me the first time we we talked about this there should be a, a contingency discussion about your healthcare outcomes here you, you know I, and i always think about this I, like these conversations are going to be plenty difficult for a 75 year old person where i think that the quality of life question is maybe a little bit more obvious i think but for a 35 year old the quality of life conversation here to me, that's a, it's a, it's a, a decision I would not want to have to make for anybody. And, and here you're giving somebody a tool in their toolbox. So you're giving the financial advisor a tool in their toolbox to have that conversation, which I think is fantastic. And you're addressing a real risk that has to be addressed. And I know these things happen. I hear about these decisions from my clients sometimes, from the students that I work with. And I'm sure you've seen way more of this than anybody else. So I don't know what the exact tool is. I've already given you a, like a couple of intros to people in the business that I, and I'm, I've made a list here as we're chatting actually about people that I have to introduce you to beyond this. Uh, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but it's a starting point anyways. Well, and and I think, you know, COVID has given us, uh, is increased the awareness of the reality of serious illness. Uh, so, so it's another example of, you know, I could get hit by a car, I could have a stroke, I could catch COVID and, and I could have a, a debilitating illness that I may survive, but I'm left in that incapacitated state. And so who's, who's going to represent me? Who's going to make decisions for me? You know, and so I, one of the other things I learned from talking to a lot of lawyers, um, and I remember Planwell Guide currently is focused on helping people think ahead and plan ahead for medical care. A lot of the lawyers say to me, you know, it, it, most of the conflict that emerges um, when a person is alive but incapacitated or disabled is more around their personal care, uh, where there's dispute or conflict within the family about how much we should really spend on this person who's incapacitated. You, you know, do we get them a nice place, uh, nice food, nice clothing, or can we just get by with a minimum? Um, because you know they're they're alive, but they're not really aware. Or they're not really able to experience like you or I would. And so, <clears throat> one of my new innovations, again with the future version of Planwell Guide, is to bring in a module where I'm using the same sort of values exercise and getting people to reflect on and give give instructions, not not in the form of instructional directives, but in terms of values and preferences for what my personal care might look like if I'm alive and incapacitated. What I'm saying is I think there'll be even stronger alignment between a financial planner's conversation that they need to have around serious illness planning and what Planwell Guide will do, because it's not just medical now, it'll be personal care. And so, you know, how do we equip financial planners across Canada to strengthen that conversation? It's not just about death and needing a will, it's about serious illness planning, planning for future periods of incapacitation when somebody's going to need to make decisions for you and who's that going to be and how do you capacitate them? Here's Planwell Guide. And how do you ensure you've got enough financial resources you know, set aside or with insurance 
you know, to manage that space. So I think that's really where the synergies are and, and, and how we, how I can help create the, the language training and the toolkit so that it make, it, it makes it easier for you to have a serious illness, you know, financial planning conversation that includes a, f- a referral to this free, free planning website. That's really what I'd love to, you know, figure out how to do with your community. Yeah, I, I really like the language of trade-offs here. Uh, this is something that going through a financial planning curriculum today, you're exposed to a lot of. And I think any planner who goes through the the tool at uh, PlanWell Guide will get a good understanding of where those trade-offs are. That that to me is is a, a good tool to have that conversation. Now, we haven't touched at all on uh, organ donation and tissue donation. And this is something I do remember talking about with my lawyer when I very first went through this exercise. Um, where does that topic enter into this, uh, this conversation? Yeah, I, I, don't, um, I don't see that as the same as should I be resuscitated or not. Uh, and so I'm very comfortable with people making that decision in advance. At the point that that decision gets operationalized, you're 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 dead. And so those rules about healthcare consent law um, is are, are don't apply. And so in many personal directors or power of his attorney, there is a space for you to denote that what you what your uh, willingness to have your organs and tissues donated are. And so that can continue. This does. So what what I'm trying to say is that that doesn't impact impact that. That makes sense. That to me, I agree. It's not really a contingency case. We're not harvesting those things while you're still alive or while you're alive and able to use them. So now what about interaction with other online tools? Uh, We've seen some really good uh, online wills uh, tools come out lately. Is this something you've considered at all? Is there any opportunity for uh, an interaction or crossover here? I, I hope so. Um, I, I will say I'm in dialogue with a lot of the CEOs of those online tools because my tool's online too. And so to the extent that people like working online, um, you know, maybe we could be cross-fertilizing each other uh, with online users. So I, I don't have anything concrete to say other than I'm in dialogue and I hope we can collaborate. I think it's a natural and I think... Uh... Again, not everybody is comfortable going online and doing these kinds of things. I'm curious about your, when you mentioned that though, curious about your sort of user base. I know that there's a question right at the beginning about age. I assume that's largely because the, I think 21 to 30 is the first age category you have on there. I'm assuming that's because they're going to have different outcomes based on the, the results of their healthcare. But I also, you're a researcher. Are you, uh, are you gathering some data here? Do you know who's using the service, I guess? Oh, yeah. I know who's using the service. I would say our average age is about 60. The, the prototype of the average user is about 60. And um, they're, they're looking at COVID and they're looking at the realities of life. And they've embraced that they're mortal and they want to do their planning to increase the chances that they get what's right for them, but also very, very aware, you know, that they want to, you know, reduce the stressful impact on their loved ones. Um, uh, we have a lot of users in the 80, 80 plus range. And those are, uh, again, people that are, I, I, I want to make it clear that if my number comes up, I, I just want to check out. And, and so, you know, they denote comfort care only, and they, they, they're talking to their family and their children and their doctor and making sure that they, 
they have a controlled experience uh, out of here. We don't see a lot of younger users. Um, and to be honest, it, you know, maybe it's the least important uh, cohort of, of adults that need to be engaged. Uh, I, I do try and make a plea to the, the 20 and 30-year-olds uh, or 35-year-olds that this, this is important for you to do, if only to bring back to your social unit, your, your, your family unit, that you've done this, and this is important as a way of role modeling to your parents or your grandparents that they ought to do it too. So it becomes sort of a family journey and you can lead by example as a younger person. And by the way, as a younger person going through this material, it's going to be a lot more straightforward, a lot easier to work through because most likely you're going to sign up for the, you know, the full meal deal um, because you're, if you're healthy and you want that chance of, of full recovery, it gets more complicated and more thoughtful as you move to the other end of life and you're like, do I really want to, you know, you know, sign up for the full meal deal or something less? And what are the consequences of, of those different decisions? And so it becomes more of a protracted or difficult experience. But again, for a younger person, they can whip through this in, in a matter of minutes. And, and, and again, then they bring that conversation to their parents and grandparents or to their other social circles. And it, it just normalizes this planning conversation, which I think will be helpful from a, at a societal level. I don't know how to take this. You say a younger person can move through it in a matter of minutes. It took me so long and so many different attempts. Maybe I have to come to terms with my, my actual age here. So I know you asked me this question earlier, but I'm going to flip it around here. Do you have thoughts around the, the language that you find effective here? Is there, is there a set of terms that a, a financial advisor can introduce into their language to get people to think about this? meaningfully is there uh i appreciate you shared a story earlier i find stories financial advisors tend to really uh gravitate to stories is there anything else that that you think the financial advisor should be bringing up here to increase the chances of of making this happen um i i think i've already mentioned the biggest one is shifting it away from end of life planning where they feel like they're making their end of life medical decisions because that's too you know scary for people to serious illness and, and and that people will get that and get serious illness and then and then highlighting uh so so a lot of people have a a, a faith-based approach to this that they trust that the doctor or the system will do them well and, and i again i'm not trying to besmirch the i love the canadian healthcare system um, but the reality of a complex healthcare system and people with complex problems is there's room for error. And there's a lot of medical error in this space that we're we're talking about here. So if they're if they're interested in getting the best care for themselves, they've got to lean into this space and do this kind of preparation and, and planning. So that's one button I would for sure push. And then the second one we also talk quite a bit about is that this will be easier on their family. And that, that should resonate with a financial planner because that's a, that's, that's a motivation why a lot of people come to a financial planner is they want what's right for, or good for them, but they also don't want to sort of leave a burden behind if they die prematurely or if they're incapacitated prematurely, they, they've taken care of their loved one. So this is part of that taking care of my loved one's conversation that, that you're going to have with your clients is to bring in the serious illness planning, bring in that disability insurance, you know, conversation. So those are the, the main tools. 
um, you know, language strategies that I would see working for us as we try and engage people to think ahead and plan ahead. Um, at, at a, if I get a step back at a high level, there's a, there's a lot of people that aren't coming to financial planners or aren't going to lawyers or aren't going to doctors to think ahead and plan ahead. And, and that's the bigger conversation that we need to have is how do we shift them, get their heads up and looking ahead and realizing that, you know, if I keep on this path that I'm on where I'm not preparing for anything, I'm going to have a poor life, a poor quality. I'm going to live shorter. I'm going to have a bad death experience. I'm going to leave a bad legacy behind. So, you know, how do we convert them to look up, look ahead, value that future health state and make decisions today that will lead to a better tomorrow? That's a, we need some, you know, behavioral psychologists uh, to help us wrestle with that one, eh? I do think that this idea that as a financial planner, or financial advisor, I get proficient with this kind of conversation that this is a, a draw, a potential source of attraction where I can, you know, sort of sell that as a service to my clients or to prospective clients where I say, look, and this is a, it's a big challenge in the industry today in general, is this sort of shift away from focusing on say investment returns to focusing on the, the items you're talking about on you know, meaningful legacy on leaving behind positive memories for the people that you, you know, interacted with that just having a better overall quality of life. Right. So, so that's, I think that's a really unified message that way. That's, that's great. What's, uh, what's next for uh, plan well guide you? I know you're in your early days here, but I'm sure you've got, uh, got some thoughts about where you're going to take this tool. Yeah. Um, well, so actually right now, um, because I'm having conversations with you and other people in the financial industry, we're trying to develop that toolkit of either language training strategies or, or hard copy tools, uh, electronic reminders, things that I can work with you to ensure that your client, my future patient, you know, is adequately prepared for the future. The thing I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, most interested in is what we call these e-reminders, um, where again, if you, you can refer your client to an e-reminder program from Planwell Guide, where if they sign up, we would nudge them every two weeks until they finish their dear doctor letter. And you know, Jason, from your own lived experiences that you needed to come back to it, you know, a few times before you finished it. But, you know, life happens, you might get distracted, other priorities may compete. And so, you know, maybe you don't get back to it. So, but imagine that you got an email or a text message as, as to your preference um, with a little quote, maybe a visual to say, hey, this is important. You should lean into this, you know, go back and finish your dear doctor letter. So that's, that's a program that we're posting on our website and announcing actively as we speak. So if you're interested in learning more about that, if it's not up today, it'll be up by the end of the month, information on how you can engage your clients in an e-reminder program um, that enables them to get these e-messages. Um, for a limited time period, I'm actually offering up myself to meet virtually with those clients that finish that program, just to review their planning, their, their final wishes and preferences, any questions that they may have. But also I wanna hear from them firsthand um, what their experience on the e-reminder program is. Because uh, we're, we're formally evaluating it, we'll give them a $10 gift certificate from Timmy's if they fill out the evaluation certificate. So there's, um, so there's something in it for, for them. So I, that's what I'd love to, 
you know, be able to promote, you know, in this conversation and with your audience is an awareness of those, the tools that we're trying to create, uh, the e-reminder program, the, the free consultation with a critical care doctor, time limited only, because I, I can't manage a thousand people at once, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And just uh, by way of tracking here, we're recording this in late January, and uh, this probably won't be live for public consumption until sometime in late April, early May. So we should be good in terms of having those tools available by then. And I love the e-reminder, the uh, email. I got the email every, so I think I first signed up in late November, early December, and that email shows up every two weeks. I think, yeah, I, I know, I know. It's just it's a difficult set of, I don't want to say difficult set of decisions, but I, you know, you're, you're at least weighing the consequences of how you establish that. So yeah, I, I thought that was great. I was really surprised to see that with a, with a free service that uh, you know, nudge to come back and get it done. So thanks for doing that. That's, that's a nice touch. I think that's something that the advisors on the call will all look on fondly. Uh, do you have any last minute comments, questions, thoughts for the folks listening? Just again, to repeat the invitation for people as individuals to go to Planwell Guide, do their serious illness planning, do themselves and their families a favor, but then to you as professionals to see us as partners. Um, we're, we're all trying to you know, help people think ahead and plan ahead. And, and so whilst I have a draft set of ideas on you know, what I think might be a good toolkit or good language strategies, I'm very open to you know, other ideas, other things that I can develop to enable us to work efficiently. So um, my, my, web, my, my email address is all over my website. And so if you go to planwellguide.com, feel free to interact with me if you have questions or want to explore further partnership. That's uh, wonderful. I, I'm really happy to be promoting this tool. I think it's a, a game changer in terms of how we think about not end of life planning, but rather uh, serious illness planning. I'm a big fan of that, that shift in thinking here. Thanks very much for taking the time and sharing your expertise and, and really trying to get the word, of, word out about this uh, valuable tool. Thanks, Dr. Howland. Thanks for having me, Jason. Okay, as you no doubt heard there, I'm pretty enthusiastic about this tool. And I really do think that, and I was really happy Dr. Howland gave me the opportunity to address this, but I think... Overall, there's a, a huge opportunity for advisors to have better discussions with especially younger clients about what happens if something goes wrong. And I, I think that disability insurance, of course, is a big gap here. To some extent, the emergency fund. To me, this is the whole purpose of the financial plan. We put a financial plan in place. We say, here's where you are right now. Here's what you're trying to accomplish or where you're trying to get. And what if something happens along the way? Now, that something might be something good or something bad. And a financial plan should contemplate both of those things. Obviously, in this episode, we're talking about the what if something bad happens. But I do think that there's an opportunity as well for discussions in our financial planning process about what if you get an unexpected raise at work or what if you get a bonus or, and it's not that this comes without the bad, but what if you get an unexpected inheritance? What if you can sell an asset for far more than you expected to sell it for? 
In my mind, a financial plan doesn't necessarily have to contemplate every last one of those events, but by contemplating both those positive events and those negative events, we prepare for a whole range of outcomes. In that sense, I find this conversation is very much a financial planning conversation. We even talk about trade-offs in the episode. And of course, trade-offs are a big topic of discussion today in how we build our financial plans to the extent that if you were writing your uh, QAFP or CFP exam today, you would have questions that very specifically ask you to help a client to measure those trade-offs or to weigh those trade-offs. The number for today's episode is seven. The number for today's episode is seven. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So Please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, if it wasn't obvious, I'm going to strongly recommend that you pop over to Dr. Hyland's website, to planwellguide.com, and go through the exercise yourself. I think you'll find that you'll learn something from doing it. I think it will put the, uh, the point on the requirement to make that difficult decision. I have a follow-up from a prior episode. So Adrian George was on an episode uh, quite a while ago now, actually. But uh, Adrian, who was a great guest and actually kind of ironic to this episode, talked about financial planning for physicians. Uh, But he had made a sort of offhand comment about the CBA, the Canadian Emergency Business Account. That's the loan. Initially, it was $40,000, the loan that uh, small business owners could get. Uh, where the government was going to lend you um, 40000 sorry, your bank was going to lend you $40,000, really underwritten by the government, and they were going to um, then forgive $10,000 of the loan if it's paid off in time. Now, one curious point here is that $10,000, that forgiven portion of the loan, is actually taxable, and it's taxable in the year that you get the loan. So I think that's a little bit of an unexpected outcome with that SIBA. Uh, and then if you fail to repay the loan, then you would get a deduction to offset the tax you've already paid. Anyways, what Adrian had mentioned in there was that there's a personal guarantee with that. And uh, Peter Beranger out in Stratford, 
Ontario reached out to me and said, hang on a second. Uh, now, Peter actually has a background in uh, commercial and personal lending, so I know he pays attention to such things. He says, that does not make sense. There's no personal guarantee there. And I agreed with that. I I did a SIBA loan uh, back in the day, and I didn't sign a personal guarantee or anything like that. However, uh, it turns out then I connected the three of us. So uh, Adrian and Peter and I had a good conversation about this. It turns out that uh, Adrian called his bank for some, oh, sorry, he logged into his bank account, I apologize, and he saw this recorded as a personal line of credit. He's incorporated, and it was his corporation that took out the loan, and he had to undo that. So this is something to watch for. You might have clients, or you yourself, might have borrowed under that SIBA loan, and your financial institution might have misrecorded it as a personal debt, and that's not accurate. It turns out that Adrian was able to get that addressed, but I thought this was a, a great warning for folks uh, listening here. So if you have clients that have that SIBA loan, there should be no personal guarantee attached to it. The government is underwriting it, and it might be worth just having a look at how that debt was recorded exactly. Okay, I've clearly been negligent with uh, checking in on reviews and ratings because I've got some good reviews here. And I'm going to go way back to October of 2020 when Blaja, or maybe Blaya, uh, 178, uh, gave us a really nice review. Thanks very much. And then uh, Martinson iTunes account. I know exactly who that is in October of 2020. Thanks very much, Brett. Uh, and then uh, again, October 2020, Rob Cook gave us a nice review. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. And... I don't know who this is, but uh, Nicole P71 in December of 2020 gave us a nice review as well. Really appreciate it. And uh, Marinus456, I think I know who that is, in December of 2020 gave us a nice review as well. And uh, everybody sort of has the same theme here. Good to learn something. And the CE credits are a bonus. Uh, and of course, that's what we're going for here. We want to be educational. We also want an efficient way for you to be able to obtain your continuing education credits. Thanks very much for continuing to listen. And again, I hope you are learning something. And you might notice that I had promised uh, that this was going to be a cryptocurrency episode. I uh, just shuffled that one two weeks further down the line. And in two weeks, we're going to talk to Mike about cryptocurrency. Thanks very much. And hopefully we'll see you back in two weeks time. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmelo Paquette, uh, Jilu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.